Hey there, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. So today we're going to be featuring one of our special guests, who is none other than Andrew Parsons. If you don't know Andrew, you probably don't know too much about the whole podcasting industry. And I might be saying that with a bit of exaggeration because most of his work is behind the scenes, but today we're going to flip the tables as now he gets to field our questions and let us know what podcasting is all about. So Andrew Parsons is an award-winning audio producer and the executive producer of Prologue Projects. His shows, which we'll get into in a moment, have millions and millions of downloads. But first, Andrew got his start in audio while working as a New York City school teacher in 2007. He reported and produced an audio documentary about special education and the charter school system, and the rest is history. Since then, he's been the senior producer at the history podcast Backstory and co-created and produced the first two seasons of the Slate podcast Slow Burn. He's lectured and taught at his alma mater, the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and currently serves on the Google PRX Podcast Creator Advisory Committee. That's quite a mouthful there. So what's Andrew been up to lately, you ask? Well, he just completed the third season of Fiasco, which is now on the Luminary platform, about the Boston desegregation crisis of the 1970s, uh, which just got a stellar review from The New Yorker. He also recently launched a podcast with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tim Weiner about the history of the Russian and American covert espionage called Whirlwind, which sounds really cool. And simultaneously, they've begun a series on the Astros sign-stealing scandal hosted by the former Sports Illustrated journalist Ben Rader, who wrote the book Astro Ball and predicted their 2017 championship three years prior when they were still failing. That's all in addition to Andrew's normal work, which includes the Trevor Noah podcast, also on Luminary, and a weekly chat show about the Supreme Court. He's got plenty of other things in the hopper, uh, certainly keeping busy, but he carved out an hour for us here today to field our questions. So without further ado, please help me welcome Andrew Parsons. So, Andrew, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. This was, uh, as I'm just going through your bio and some of the emails that we had exchanged before, I was really pumped up about this because uh, it seems like the world just can't get enough of podcasts right now. Yeah, they, they seem to be the thing that like everyone is pivoting into. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton just uh, uh, released another podcast yesterday. Michelle Obama has one, it seems like. Uh, everyone... Yep just pivoting into that space yeah it kind of seems like if you, you don't have a podcast now you're like behind the eight ball and uh it, it's crazy because i mean i would say it was probably only three or four years ago if that that i even knew what a podcast was and i even had like the little icon on my iphone and i was like what the heck is that microphone yeah yeah i feel like uh it's it's been mainstream definitely like fairly recently um, I think Serial, the podcast Serial, uh, is, is known to be the first time that there was like a mega hit podcast back in 2013. Uh, and then the industry has just like exponentially grown ever since. Well, I, I shouldn't say exponential. That's like, <laughs> but it has like grown very rapidly ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty close to it. 
And was that the first one that really kind of took the world by storm? Was Serial the one that kind of uh, introduced podcasting to the world? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, th- I think that's that's considered to be like the big one. Um, my introduction into podcasts was a little bit earlier. Uh, I had like moved to New York City right out of college when I was uh, in 2005. And my brother-in-law got me like a what at the time seemed like you know an absolutely revolutionary ipod with like that wheel that turned um and i was a big public radio (laughs) i was a big public radio listener um and a lot of the shows you know serial grew out of this american life and a lot of the shows that you could get on podcasts and sort of like take with you on the subway or as you got around um were like primarily public radio shows like this american life and radio lab um i guess you know, more in like 2007, that's where I got to be like a huge podcast junkie and eventually decided to try like making my own, um, probably in, I think 2008 or so, 2007, 2008 was, um, the first like, uh, attempts that I had to try to do audio documentary. Um, and eventually I pivoted into journalism, but for me, like podcasts, uh, a few years before, you know, it was the back in when it was sort of like more of an urban phenomenon of, you know, people on their iPods just walking around listening to, uh, to these things. Um, that's, that's really what got me started into journalism and into the podcast space itself. Um, but my, the funny thing was like my aspiration was to work at a public radio station. It wasn't to do uh-huh. podcasts. And then now we've like, we live in this flipped world where like people at public radio stations are trying to like break into, um, I mean, public radio stations are starting podcasts themselves, but people even in that space are trying to get into the uh, companies more like ours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really kind of turned the whole industry, you know, on its ear. So that's pretty cool. And so if you started in 07 or 08, that had to be, I imagine, like right at the forefront of, you know, this whole project of building out podcasts. And uh, was was Joe Rogan like at the beginning? Because I know that's that's kind of the name you always associate, or at least that uh, the circles I run in uh, as far as podcasting was, is he just the most popular or was he really at the beginning of it too? That's a good question. I wonder, I'm going to look that up right now. Uh, like when the Joe Rogan podcast uh, like experience started um, because I remember hearing it or first getting like wind of it a little bit more recently. Um, huh. Oh, it was launched in 2009. So that it's okay. old at this point. I remember reading about Mark Marin as well in like 2011. People started doing uh, sort of profiles on him um, because he was like still doing all of his like interviews outside his garage. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I guess that that was the time around like the the latter part of the last decade that a lot of people pivoted in and uh i wonder i sort of wonder how long it took him to monetize that as well um that's the thing too i always wonder yeah i mean clearly like he's you know probably the most uh probably getting the most revenue of any podcast um as far as i would imagine yeah yeah like revenue share too Uh, sure sure and how does, if you can give us a little bit of insight to that as well, I, you know, I, you hear about the deal that I guess he recently signed, not to spend too much time on, on another podcast of Rogan's, but uh, the deal that he signed with Spotify, I've heard just obscene numbers uh, of 
um, what went into that transaction, but is, is most of it just through sponsors that a lot of these folks are, are getting to kind of put on their show or uh, where does some of the, the monetary influence come into play with podcasting? You know, I think it all depends on the form of the podcast um, and how much, you know, money you're putting into it um, on whether or not and how big it is, whether or not like uh, ad revenue can uh, can balance your books um, from from our experience. There are like a few different models and the best organizations are uh, I shouldn't say the best organizations, um, but a lot of podcast organizations and companies that do multiple podcasts are trying to um, balance a few different revenue streams. Uh, so ad, ad revenue is one of them. I'd say that that is the, um, that's a, a great track if you're a comedian with like a big name or you know an actor, someone with a name that can market themselves. They have a fan base already. They're gonna get uh, a lot of um, initial ears on the project so you can uh, sell it from the get-go you can sell it before it launches um, and you can if it's a conversation show if it's a show you know like this one where you're sitting down with someone um, you're uh, it's a two-way conversation that you can clean up and uh, you know put uh, out fairly quickly um, I think you get the most out of revenue if that's the format um, okay. whereas you know I got the first big hit that I was a part of was uh, Slow Burn, which is much more like Serial. It was an eight-part narrative podcast. We interviewed, you know, I think, I forget which, see, we interview anywhere from 40 to 60 people per season. Uh, we put a ton of resources into it. Um, Fiasco, which is the, the uh, sort of what we're doing now, which is most like Slow Burn, um, you know, we get custom score, you know, from uh, musicians and composers. Uh, wow. We have to have a team of producers. Uh, and so that you're pouring a lot more into a product that only has like every six, six to eight months, you're putting out like eight episodes. Um, and wow. that, I think those, those are like, that's the um, pretty much the, the spectrum. And for gotcha. that, you need uh to be a little bit more creative um for example fiasco is on the platform luminary and it is uh paywalled so we have taken we've chosen to you know uh make that deal to have fewer listeners uh on that podcast but you know have sort of an upfront check from uh you know luminary audible uh, can have a little bit deeper pockets and uh, can uh, are trying to work with the model in which uh, there's a little bit more of exchange uh, of services from the listener and it's not just ads. Um, and gotcha. then so that's something that listeners are actually paying and subscribing to listen to those shows. Yeah, exactly. And the Trevor okay. Noah podcast that we do is also through Luminary. Um, but you know, there's there's other things that get wrapped into podcast deals that you sign. Um, one is also IP. Uh, we've, um, yeah, I mean, we've, uh, when I was at Slowburn, Slate sold that as a TV miniseries. Uh, and we've done the same with Fiasco. And so, uh, and lots of companies, um, one called Gimlet, uh, 
that have done a lot of that. You know, they did a fiction podcast called Homecoming that Amazon bought, and it was a Julia Roberts, you know, uh, uh, video series. Um, so that's another one. And then the third, I'd say the fourth way that a lot of studios, um, my former employer Slate does this, as does like Gimlet, Pineapple Media, uh, where they do these vanity podcasts sort of for um, corporations. Uh, and yeah. they have like a separate arm called like Slate Studios or Pineapple Studios or uh, Gimlet Creative. And that is basically a company that goes, with the, goes to them with an idea for like a series uh, that really, you know, pushes their company profile. Uh, Gatorade, you know, with a series of uh, athlete interviews about how tough it is to, to get through, um, to push through sports and stuff. And that is you know, entirely promotional. There's no real, I, a lot of the people that I know that have been parts of those have real trouble with it because their background is journalism and is like, they, they have to do what the company says and they can't like yep. <laughs> journalism muscles. Um, but though the price tag on those are much higher than it takes to produce them. And that uh-huh. revenue often covers some of the bigger risks and more creative projects that uh, wow. you're hoping are big once they land, but you know, they're not always, it's, um, it's a lot like a a startup where you're, you're taking certain risks on, on projects if it doesn't have that huge name next to it. Um, and there's some companies that only do that, that only invest in the huge names because they know there's immediate revenue. Uh, so I would say like, yeah, the landscape's like pretty complicated. Uh, and then of course there's Patreon and self-funding things and, um, there's so many avenues that you could go down with this. Wow. Yeah. And, and a lot of places do combinations of those. Like Slate has Slate Studios. They have ads they sell and they have a Slate Plus member program. Okay. And now just to, to take a step back, you know, and, and so we can get to know you a little bit more and how we got here. So if we rewind to, to 2007, you were a school teacher in the city? Uh, yeah, I did Teach for America in 2006. Okay. Uh, and so I was in, um, I was teaching first grade in uh, a school in East New York, Brooklyn, um, gotcha. a charter school there. Um, and when you say you did an audio documentary about, you know, special ed and about the charter schools, what exactly was that? That was just a documentary without a camera. Is that what that is? Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically. I mean, it's, it's a little bit similar to like what you might hear on, um, you know, and this American life or, you know, even, uh, the stuff that we're doing now. Um, I, I basically had noticed that, uh, the school that I was in, well, I should say two things happened simultaneously. One, I was, uh, the summer in between my first and second year teaching, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, there's a, a car honk that went through, uh, so I'm <laughs> not sure if you heard it, but I'm going to pick up, uh, two things happened. The summer before, um, a summer in between my first and second year teaching, I was trying to figure out, you know, where I was going. The first year was very, very difficult as it is for a lot of teachers. And that's why burnout is a big issue um, in teaching. And uh, hats off to all the teachers that, that stick through. Um, but I, I was talking to my sister and she was visiting me in New York from California. And she had asked me if, if money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? And I said, I would probably be producing radio in some, in some way, um, either public radio or documentaries or journalism. 
Uh, and she said, well, you should find out a way to do that. So I decided to like buy a microphone and recording kit and uh, figure out how to, how to do that. And there's a website that if anyone is interested in, um, in you know, just audio gear, how to get, I know there's a ton right now, but uh, back in 2007, there's only one and it's called transom.org. It's a Peabody award-winning website, even back then, uh, that is trying to democratize um, just the, the form of, of uh, audio storytelling. And that was transcend.org? Uh, transom. A transom. Yeah. And they have audio workshops. A lot of people involved in podcasts got their start going through one of their audio storytelling workshops um, up in Maine. Uh, and I, I just did what they told me. <laughs> I got the equipment that uh, they suggested on the website. There was only training at that point in, I think, one audio editing software, though they have a bunch of different options now. Um, and I, uh, I just you know, decided I was going to go and uh, figure out how to tell stories. And simultaneously, what had been happening uh, in my school was that there were, uh, I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds with, uh, the way education is set up in New York city and what a charter school is. Um, sure, but sure. a charter school generally is a, um, a publicly funded school that also, uh, gets private funding and kids go in on a lottery system. Um, so they often have smaller class size and they're meant to try to sort of experiment with, uh, education and be another option within a community, uh, another option for education within a community, um, mm -hmm. that's not selective and still free and still gets public funds. Um, but the issue that we were having at our school was because it was a lottery system and it was a smaller school, uh, as far as special ed goes, you usually don't have enough children to make your own, like a separate special ed class that needs, and usually like a, uh, someone depending on everything. Um, there might be children that need two teachers and only like 10 kids in the class or only eight kids in the class. And uh, we just didn't have enough kids in our school for that and we had one kindergartner who was heavily autistic and in a class of like 30 kids and if you and this child would have been in uh i think probably a classroom with only six kids uh had they been in the traditional public school system and okay. the school was was just tussling on what to do with it the parent wanted him in that school because they believed that this charter school was better than the neighborhood schools and particularly the special ed um, uh, schools that were in that neighborhood, but the school just couldn't handle it. And uh, it was like a, we'd have these meetings that uh, between the teacher and our principal on sort of like what to do with this quandary. Do you go against the parents' wishes? Do you keep trying to, you know, integrate a kid into your classroom that needs more? Uh, even That's though a tough one. Yeah, and, and special ed kids have like a legal document called an IEP that determines how, what goals they're going to hit for the year. And it's a legal document that, that you know, the school in particular couldn't uh, even abide by. They can, it, and, you know, I had the, gen, like the general question, like, is it that even legal? Um, so I just, I wanted to figure out like what what those choices were that everyone was grappling with it, it you know and, and that's, the, that was the impetus to the first documentary 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, okay. it just was like a situation full of gray areas and full of like wow. a lot of people trying to do their best with, uh, and the choice is not being all that clear, which is tends to be a lot of the stuff that uh, we we drift towards uh, in some of the topics that we choose um, when we're trying to like sure. choose a new season of Fiasco, for example. So, and uh, now did somebody n- notice that and, and say, "Hey, you got a knack for this thing," or was that the beginning of like your own journey of building out more documentaries or shows? Or um, I yeah, guess, that was know, just, what was that next step? That was just the beginning of my own journey. Um, I spent a year doing that. And then I just started an interview as many people as I could and tried to play with how I could tell their stories. Um, I mean, just like everything. Um, yeah. From, sorry, I'm getting a uh, uh, quick slack here. But, um, but like I even, um, I, I sort of uh, did everything I could uh, to the point of like putting Craigslist ads out, asking people to just wow. like, their stories and I'd meet up with them in public places and just <laughs> talk to them for a couple hours and record them and figure out a way to to narrate them um to that's one way them. of meeting people <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um to you know just friends of mine to uh there is a storytelling scene in New York City like a live storytelling scene and I would um the main stage is a podcast called The Moth that's been around for a long time uh, but all of these storytellers would have their own little uh, venues in which they would tell stories so that they can workshop and practice. So I offered to record them and send them the recording as long as I could use it uh, in my podcast as well. Um, this is, you know, back in 2008, 2009. Oh, no, 2009, 2010. So um, you actually had your own podcast at that point? Well, yeah, by 2009, uh, I went with the goal of like launching a storytelling podcast. Um, and I did that in 2009. It was called Radio Waves. It does not exist anymore. And I just used it to, you know, uh, try to experiment as much as possible. Um, and I tried to set a goal of getting something out the door, something in the feed every two weeks. Um, and I was working alone and I didn't have, uh, you know, an editor or you know, any, I, I would bug my friends for music to use because I didn't know if I could use uh, just any music. Um, so, you know, it was very much on the fly, but and it was very, and it was all while I was uh, teaching, um, you know, full time. Uh, but I just tried to set goals and, and, uh, and, and just get better and uh, try to do what That's I could. That's awesome. That's uh, great. And, and eventually I, I, got overwhelmed with both endeavors and had to choose one. Got it. And, and that's what I was going to ask you about. Cause I love that your sister mentioned that to you of, you know, if money weren't an issue, what would you be doing right now? And I know a lot of people have posed that question. I, I think I actually first heard it uh, from Timothy Ferris, which was a, a show and obviously mm-hmm. some of his books that I've read. Uh, and he talks a lot about that, which I think is a lot of people struggle with that of kind of chasing their passion um, and also trying to be practical at the same time. Uh, and I think that's the beauty oftentimes when you're starting out your first career or you're still relatively young, uh, even like I could do as, as a financial advisor building my own practice, um, I couldn't imagine having to redo it all if I was you know, 50 years old or something. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's some of the beauty of youth is to get to take some of those leaps of faith 
And when, when did you actually take that when you said, you know what, okay, I'm going to move on from teaching and pursue this radio slash podcasting world, uh, you know, full tilt? Uh, I, it was 2000, I think it was the summer of 2010 or 11. I can't quite remember. I think 10, 2010. Yeah. It only took uh, about Was three that a years scary ago. move for you? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. Decision that kept you up at night? Uh, it, it did for a number of years actually. Um, and, okay. and that, that actually has to do with the financial aspect of it. I, I had saved a good amount of money. Um, and believe it or not as a school teacher in New York city, um, you know, I'd, I'd made the smart choices to, you know, not, uh, spend a lot on my living arrangements and have roommates and always take the smallest room without windows possible in the apartment. Uh, so, <laughs> so I did, um, I did have, uh, some money to take that leap with at the time. If you wanted to do anything in public radio, it was unpaid internships. So it, w that's what made it scary. Um, you know, I did several uh, unpaid internships while doing other jobs, like working in museums as an educator, like part-time. Um, I, in all the while, I was applying to grad school as well, thinking that could be a good way to, to pivot to. And then I ended up going to, to grad school uh, in 2011, um, only to find that, like, on your way out, you, the thing, the majority of things that people... Um, offer you coming out of grad school are more internships. Um, and some of them are paid. And if they're paid, they're paid low. Um, you know, so it, it all involved sort of taking on debt, probably more debt than I need to. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily automatically recommend grad school for anyone going into journalism. Um, I think a lot about, you know, whether I could have like toughed it out at the public radio station in New York City, um, which was hyper, hyper competitive. Uh, all the interns and all the temps are constantly vying for those full-time jobs. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was scary and it came at like a cost of both like uh, the savings I'd saved up and, and debt that I accrued. Um, and it's only wow. now, like way later, when it's all worked out. Um, yeah. and Did you have any moments where you're like, you know what, screw this, I'm going back to teaching? Or was there ever that kind of, you know, tug of war back and forth of what do we do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in my my head that that went back and forth for a while. I never didn't have work, though um was the thing i i was able to either have good temporary you know in in audio um you know, in a lot of like creative industries there there's a lot of temp work um and there's a lot of so like much of it is freelance yeah there's a lot of freelance a lot of project-based work um and yeah it's just uh whether or not you can like convert that um into full-time gigs and you know, so I, I was, uh, I always had work. I always had either temp or full-time gigs. Uh, it was just whether or not they were like well-paid or, you know, um, had visibility. And uh, yeah, like I, I would say there's a few years where I felt I ended up, uh, I'm in back in New York City now, but I ended up even in like Charlottesville, Virginia for a couple of years on that history podcast backstory um, in which, you know, it was, in many ways, I'm such a history junkie and now like uh, 
have been on a couple of big history podcasts, but um, you know, at the time it wasn't like it was a known podcast. It was on public radio stations in like Chicago and across the country, but it wasn't like a big, big show. And it was a small staff and it was pretty exhausting. And I often thought like, oh man, I should just like become a teacher here. I have a master's in education, but then like I would look at the uh, teaching salaries and realized they they were either lower or not much different from what I was doing, um, and uh, and I eventually went back to freelancing. That's where I actually uh, worked on some shows that got big, um, got and was able to convert that. But you know, it wasn't. There's a period where all my capital just seemed to be uh, lost, uh, and you know, I often think about what would have happened if I didn't have that right combination particularly with slow burn so slow burn was like a big hit show that um that i worked on that led to us forming our own company and led to luminary offering us like a good contract um so that we could form a company and start doing other podcasts and um and be in demand i i often think about what would have happened if that all didn't line up um you know, because my student loans are paid off now and, you know, I'm able to like buy a house and, and all that uh, stuff that's like really important, you sure, know, sure. at this point in, um, in my life. But uh, I don't think any of that was guaranteed with that, that risk that I took. Um, no, it never is. I, I think that's the life of the entrepreneur right there. And even in our business where you're starting out and it's like, hey, there's a phone book, go find clients wherever you can. And uh, it's like, you know, that first year, every day you want to quit the second year, it's like every other day you want to quit. And then eventually those, those moments of like, am I really made for this? They kind of become less and less often. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool. It sounds like you kind of went through that same trajectory uh, that a lot of other business owners do. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> um, but I guess in some ways uh, that's, that's, that is what happened um, though, you know, knowing the podcast landscape, I, I know that, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, I, I still, I don't know the exact, you know, necessarily how often it works out that way. Um, you know, uh, it, it, if you're drawing like a real parallel to, uh, starting a business, um, yeah. a lot of it was, you know, it was just, I always say that any of those uh, things are a combination of like timing, um, you know, who, you know, and then like the skills for when all of that happens at once. Um, and so, you know, for a while I was a senior producer of that show backstory and I decided I'm going to freelance, you know, everyone that I once knew in radio in New York seems to be like, you know, doing all these interesting things. Um, and one of the first things I got turned into, uh, was supposed to be just like, you know, a small mini series, history based mini series that ended up being pretty big and, uh, slate reach out to me for that. Uh, to do slow burn. And because I, when I left, I decided to pass my name around and just let everyone know three months in advance when I announced I was going to leave because I knew the show was going to have to do a national search because there just wasn't a lot of um, ready, readily available talent in Charlottesville. So we always had to do national searches to fill um, those, uh, those positions. Uh, that I was just going to let as many people as I knew as possible, that I was going freelance, that they had any projects, send them my way. And it was like a grapevine um, of Slate reaching out and asking around uh, to find people because often 
those project-based things aren't posted. They're just a lot of people asking around. Um, and then I think it was someone I knew in grad school that had mentioned that like, oh, hey, that's history podcast, this history guys, you know, uh, going freelance. Uh, and they reach out to me. So I had to be leaving my job at the right time. They had to have been uh, sourcing for this project that was like particularly well suited to me. And then on top of that, you have to have the skills to pull off like a complicated uh, audio documentary that like really makes people feel something. Um, In this, what you're describing, that's your transition from backstory over to Slate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And then I happened to be paired with like uh, a host that had never hosted a podcast before who was, and this is Leon Nafok, who was a slow burn, so host Fiasco, and he, you know, he uh, is, you know, my, my partner and runs the company that, uh, that, um, uh, that we have right now, you know, who happens to just be like an immensely talented uh, journalist uh, and writer. Uh, and that's great. You know, had and- skills that could pair with mine well, but um, that's, a, that's, you know, when you think back on it, that's an awful lot of things that have to happen all at once. And yeah, it's be, like a whole series of coincidences that just yeah. play in your favor, you know, with hard work and a little bit of luck. Yeah. And that yeah. it came out at the time that people are hungry for it too. Like there's an audience. Sure. And when, so when you say like backstory, for instance, it, it started out small and then it did much more than you thought it would. Like just to give our listeners an idea, if they don't know that show, like what is it that when you say it was big, what do you define big for us when you talk about a podcast? Um, yeah, what you mean, uh, Slow Burn? Um, yeah, they, without revealing, I <laughs> know contractually I can't like really reveal any of uh, uh, Slate's numbers that they haven't revealed publicly, but um, generally a podcast that is that you can start selling ads on um i would say usually needs like you know 30 to 40 thousand listeners i think there's some agencies that will start looking for some um some sponsors as low as like 25 it really depends on if you have like a core following that is like immovable and will always be there um because there's some sort of smaller podcasts that are coming in around 20,000 that have just, you know, they can do live shows. They have such a, such a, that 20,000 is so devote. Um, and I would say most of, uh, and, you know, backstory was around like 60 to 80 uh, or so. So we were like selling ads on stuff, but like uh, really big, you know, I guess there are a couple of tiers. There's some really big journalistic podcasts that like hit, um, closer to like half a million or so. Um, and that and slate and slow burn blew up in, in more of those terms, um, crossing over, uh, I don't know their numbers now, but I, um, you know, crossing over into the million territory, uh, the, you know, those are, you know, those are, you know, if you're, if you're over 200, 300,000 to, to a million, um, you know, that's, usually have like uh usually have uh, a big show um and i I think that's a nice audience (laughs) it is also defined by like you're getting mentions in like the new york times and vulture and like um they have like a particular podcast reviewing outfit um you know like even fiasco doesn't have a ton of listeners because it's paywalled but we still get like we had a great review in the new yorker on our latest season 
Um, so I think buzz matters too, as far as like what a hit is. Like when you hear, I'd have friends tell me like, oh, I was listening to the Doughboys, um, which is like a comedy podcast on Earwolf, I think, um, about like food, reviewing like fast food. And they were mentioning, <laughs> they mentioned Slowburn like offhand. Um, like being like part of the conversation, uh, you know, I think matters a lot to that too. And that like helps grow your numbers. Um, but I, I'd say that's, you know, that's sort of the range. And then there's like an even huge, bigger tier of podcasts, which would go more into like the serial range and Joe Rogan, which is like, you know, the, you know, many millions you know yeah uh, when yeah, you're shooting above three to seven million um yeah when you just kind of go viral and where yeah. where did a lot of that come from like some of your initial shows whether it was backstory slow burn um do you find a lot of that traction just being spread through social media or what what kind of makes that go viral for lack of a better term yeah um well backstory had uh the advantage of starting out as a public radio show so i think some of their initial um listeners were you know people who i had heard it on the radio um and then almost anything you can hear on the radio you can find in podcasts too if you don't want to like figure out what time it's playing every week um and then uh slate had has the advantage of being part of a network they have like 20 some podcasts so they can sort of create a small echo chamber among their listeners um and promote you know uh not only promote their podcasts on other uh slate podcasts but you know do feed swaps so the moment Slowburn launched it was in the first episode was in its own feed, but it was also in the feed for the political gab fest, which it was, I think until that point, Slate's most successful show, which is still a very successful show from Slate. Um, and also they're like, uh, they have a Trump cast, uh, you know, um, a podcast, like mostly all about the phenomenon, like Donald Trump and um, all their political ones, you know, they have a Supreme Court podcast uh, called Amicus and they, it was uh, put on there. So, you know, simultaneously you're getting a, a bunch of listeners from the get-go because you're, you have that first episode in all these other feeds. Um, and then from there, yeah, you're either seeking out advertising, selling. I don't, you know, Slate didn't invest money into advertising because they didn't have to, but other podcasts will spend money up front. Um, you know, we, we ask that of anyone we partner with to have a marketing budget um, and to like sell ads on other shows. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a number of ways. And then you like actively just try to send emails to reviewers too and get them yeah, to listen. Just promote it. Yeah. And so what's um, kind of like the, the structure of, of this whole thing. So I know you mentioned you went from a teacher to podcasting, you're doing freelance work right now are you or have you been are you like a a partner in one of these companies are you an employee of a company are you just a, a contractor to whatever kind of new show or idea piques your interest like what is your i guess your employment status uh, kind of along this journey yeah so well when um when we left so i left slate basically when uh luminary approached um leon nafog and like taking uh and starting the show like Slowburn with them 
well, I shouldn't say with them, with, you know, with their money, um, because they don't produce any podcasts. They, they, uh, the slate of luminary shows, they fund, uh, podcasts as luminary originals, but, um, they don't hire anyone in. And, uh, and so, yeah, uh, basically Leon, Leon decided to start this company, um, you know, which we called prologue, uh, projects because we we do a lot of history stuff, but not exclusively so. Um, and uh, recruited me in as executive producer. Um, and basically, uh, so he started the company. So I'm, uh, and I'm, you know, I would be considered like his right hand person in charge of like all the audio stuff. I'm executive producer, uh, his title, and like anything that we produce, um, I have stake in the IP uh, essentially. Um, and and yeah and i'm uh sort of full-time overseeing uh the slate of podcasts that we produce on a bunch of different levels um i would say most notably i'm usually the last person that goes through everything tightening it up uh doing mixing mastering um and uh having a really close ear um but it's also editorial work on fiasco both lean and i do a lot of reporting um because it's our sort of like anger show and he's the the lead uh he's the host of it um and it's you know it's the closest thing to slow burn so we're still like heavily heavily involved in it um to so, you know to, not like, to interrupt but is, is, yeah, so is a lot of your work as uh like creating the content or actually writing out the scripts or the shows or uh, yeah what's a normal day like in, in this type of job i'd say it really depends on the show um there are I'd say in something like Fiasco, which is like, you know, a uh, political uh, documentary show um, that we have a, a staff, but um, it it's the show that we're like interviewing upwards of 60 people per season. So everyone needs to have a hand. And so um, I'm doing anything from like writing a script um, to, uh, you know, having heavy hand and how archive archival sound and music is used um to like just making the schedule and decide making those decisions on who's going to be a lead writer and lead researcher and lead reporter uh on an episode and how and structuring out when all our deadlines are um as we eke towards like a launch of of one season i usually takes about like six eight months to produce um so that's you know uh there's heavy heavy involvement uh, on a show like that. Uh, there are other shows in which we have a host and producer and we're sort of more quality control. We're listening to their pitches on the season and giving feedback. We're listening to layups of episodes and giving feedback. Um, we're uh, making sure it's headed in the right direction, um, but it's a little bit more overview. Uh, if we hire a few new people to do a podcast, uh, say that's like pegged to a book that's coming out. Um, you know, I'm taking the lead and uh, setting everyone up with what they need to make sure they have equipment uh, and they are onboarded into our system and have like a host of templates that I've built uh, to make sure that everything is streamlined. Um, so it's it's a real mix. And then you know, sitting down and talking uh, with Leon about some you know of the you know financial like issues that lay ahead. Um, you know, it's a little bit mix of, of all of that. And when coronavirus hit, it was trying to figure out how to get all of the shows 
um, recorded remotely um, and what to do with our studio um, that, you know, that we pay rent on, uh, but also built so we could break it down and put it into storage. Um, so, and writing guides to send uh, guests so they know how to record themselves. Um, you know, all, all sorts of, uh, you know, different levels of, you know, creation, but also heading up all the shows, like just making sure the infrastructure is there for us to do them efficiently. That's pretty cool. And so what are you working on right now? Like what's the, uh, the latest venture for you? Well, we just finished up um, the third season of Fiasco, which was about the Boston desegregation crisis in the 1970s. It was a seven-part series um, that followed, you know, the craziness that happened in Boston when um, they tried to integrate their schools and bus kids from schools, uh, school to school. Uh, and ending a season just means we have to sort of regroup and figure out what our next seasons will be. Uh, which we haven't said publicly, but we've decided to start on season four and five at once, uh, breaking up our team um, and sort of uh, trying to pursue two different subjects at once and uh, research and get all the interviews done from the get-go. Um, and those are both things that won't be, you know, launching till way into 2021. But there's a lot of scheduling um, and figuring out uh, as far as like the team goes, how they're going to do that. Uh, but the stuff we have launching now are um, a podcast from the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer, uh, Timothy Weiner, called Whirlwind. And it's all about the history of CIA um, and covert operations between Russia and the United States, uh, particularly. Uh, that sounds built, interesting. Yeah. And it's particularly built around elections. Um, and he's, huh. he's spent uh, most of his career covering uh, CIA, FBI, and um, a lot of the covert, um, you know, behind the scenes things And there, uh, which, you know, in one way it's, you know, helping Tim learn how to become a podcast host, but the trade-off is he just has like amazing access to, we've like already interviewed, I think three former CIA heads and all of these former spies, both for the Kremlin and for the U S. Um, so, uh, that I think the third episode, uh, there's three episodes out right now and it's going to be a 10 part series. Um, and that's called whirlwind. That yeah, one? whirlwind. Um, that sounds awesome. I like that. There's another one coming out in early October, so next week, um, called The Edge, and that's about the Astros sign-stealing scandal in baseball. Um, that's hosted by Ben Ryder, who's a sports il former Sports Illustrated reporter, who in 2014, when the Astros were the worst team in baseball, um, or I, I should say one of the worst teams in baseball, I'm not sure if they were the worst, um, he predicted on the cover of Sports Illustrated that they would win the 2017 World Series. Uh, and then they did. And he wrote the book Astro Ball about like their unique organization, how they actually did it. Um, what he didn't realize was that they were also cheating. Uh, so this is a series, you know, involving Ben sort of telling the story of how the Astros um, became the mega team they did and how they built a culture that enabled that cheating and sort of him also exploring how he could have possibly missed this story as well. Um, and that's a six part series coming out next week. Uh, we're in the middle of um, our, the last, I think 12 episodes of our season of the Trevor Noah podcast, uh, which is on Luminary. 
Um, but they do have a feed. Uh, if you just look up the Trevor Noah podcast of some past episodes, that's on Apple podcasts and all the other uh, podcast feeds. If you just want to like hear what it's like, um, you know, if anyone. These are, are totally separate shows. Each one of these that, that you listed that you're working on, they're just yeah, totally yeah. separate, but underneath your company prologue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have another okay. show on the Supreme Court called Five Four, um, which takes, uh, which has a very particular perspective about the Supreme Court being um, both a political animal and absolutely terrible. Uh, and they pick apart decisions they think are like particularly bad. Um, and now, are these some of your ideas, or are you guys vetting ideas that are brought to you and picking a show, or like where where do all the original ideas come from? It's a mix, um, you know, uh, like that one was, uh, I'd say Leon uh, deciding that one person on Twitter he thought was like particularly funny and interesting and like reaching out to them, him to see if he wanted to start a show um, and then shopping it around. Um, because one thing, we're a small company that have, uh, that basically are only doing shows that someone else is funding. Um, we haven't like, you know, you normally start a company with a lot of like, uh, development money. Um, but we have the unique position where like, we just needed to start a company fast because Luminary was giving us money to do one show. Um, so, you know, the way we're building is a little bit piecemeal right now. Uh, but then we also get deals that, um, you know, offers there are brought to us and that was Whirlwind and The Edge were both. Um, brought to us as like shows that might be good fits with our aesthetic um, and uh, to see if we could, you know, we could just pull it together. Uh, so it's a mix and there's definitely a couple, you know, we have a slate of ideas that we're constantly working with um, and that uh, we have, you know, meetings on uh, things that we really want to get off the ground um, and all of the steps that we're working on in the background to, to make it happen. Uh, and to pitch it around as well. So it's, it's a mixture. There are at least two or three, I'd say three other shows that are more passion projects that we've thought of that we're just trying to figure out how to get off the ground. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff that is just brought to us as well. And then did you have like a, a favorite show or, or kind of experience that you could share with us along, along the way so far? Uh, that we've done? Yeah, that you've been you know, directly involved with or kind of put your stamp on. As far as at our company, I mean, uh, I'm a, I mean, this is a little bit biased because there's all, this is all stuff that, uh, that, you know, we're working on one way or another. Um, but I think the edge is going to be really good. It's a really unique perspective. Uh, so like a really good inside perspective, um, of like a really big scandal. Um, but also asking like really broad questions about, uh, like not only baseball culture, but you know, the culture we live in uh, as a whole um, that I think, and it's just good storytelling. The characters are so amazing. Like uh, if you can, if you can tell these stories through individuals um, that, that are surprising and emotional, like it, uh, they really hit. Um, and because of that, I'm really proud of uh, the most recent season fiasco as well, because I think it's a story of um, in, of that, crisis in Boston that's not really told um, a lot of the, yeah, it, it reaches back into the 1960s, even though most of the most memorable uh, 
years um, of violence were in the mid-70s. It really tells the long story and contextualizes uh, everything that happened. Um, and there's a lot of gray areas. There's just like, I, you know, I love things where you walk out not really knowing how to feel. Um, and I think that season does a really good job of doing that. Um, that but, was about uh, the edge, that show? Well, there's, there's the edge and then the third season fiasco. Um, oh, got it. About Boston, I'm really proud of as well. Oh, and we're actually just about to release outside of Luminary, the first season of Fiasco, which was Bush v. Gore. Um, and that was basically, you know, the um, uh, inside story of, um, of that legal battle that happened 20 years ago. Uh, and I think they've, they've decided to put it outside the paywall just because it's the 20th anniversary and uh, the current election could go well beyond election day um and you know it's just one of those things that where uh, i think uh there there could be either lessons learned or just is a reminder that we've been there before wow well it sounds like you're keeping awfully busy <laughs> to say the least yeah yeah i mean i i can't complain um it's good for you really interesting uh industry to be in and it's been a journey for sure what's uh what's next for you like where do you see perhaps the industry going and also you and your company like what are if you had that five ten year plan like what are some of those goals for the future well i think uh generally as far as the goals for the future of the company i think it's um expanding uh our arsenal but uh of, of podcasts but also figuring out how to um get investments uh that will allow us to experiment more um and which is you know a, a tall order but i i think that that feels like the next step i mean in podcasting in general in the industry uh i i don't think there's anyone's fully figured out uh as far as like bigger companies are producing lots of stuff um like the perfect model uh and i think the industry as a whole is going to experiment and we're going to like need to watch and keep tabs on those experiments and see what applies to us. Uh, but then we also have to experiment ourselves. Um, I think the, the more important thing is that we're doing stuff that we like and, uh, and believe in as a concept. Um, and yeah, I'm, for me, the big question is like, what's going to enable that? In a lot of shops, what's enabled that is taking on a lot of corporate stuff, which we've been able to not do. Uh, and I think that's that's going to be a crossroads eventually. Like if you if you're going to be doing high touch, complicated storytelling that takes months and months and months, um, you're going to have to that you want complete editorial control of. Um, then you're going to you know need to figure that out in the long run. Uh, so I don't really. Uh, we we know we want to expand our imprint as a company, but um, over the next five ten years, uh, but you know a lot of this industry is sort of like having to learn and grow and keep an ear to the ground uh, as you do it. Certainly. So that's um th that was a lot of great information. I appreciate you know what you were able to share with us, and maybe one of the last things that that we could touch on is let's say that we have somebody and, and maybe they're at the beginning of the game, you know, trying, they've got their own small business or, or their passion and they want to create their own podcast or perhaps a company that's more developed. Can you tell us, you know, the avenues that either of those situations would pursue 
uh, to try and create a great podcast? Like where do they initially get started? Um, well, I, I'd say you want to first like think of how much you want to invest in it. Uh, I think on the, on the very basic level of gear, you can go really expensive or you can go fairly cheap. Um, I think uh, you have to figure out, you know, knowing that you're likely not going to get any return right away, uh, what you're willing to invest. But there are like a ton of websites that have really good recommendations. And I already said transom.org is one of them. Uh, so definitely look into that. But on a, the the other very basic like first steps I would take is to see, uh, to figure out an elevator pitch for your idea and bounce it around your company or your friends and to see what their gut reactions are. If they're not that great, figure out if you're selling it wrong or if it's the wrong idea. You're also going to need to look around and see what other people are doing thing, uh, doing in your space, whether or not, um, especially if you're doing something to promote your company, whether you're better off just going on other people's podcasts and getting an audience that way, if everyone else is doing the exact same thing that you would be doing. Um, but if you have something unique to offer, figure out what that is and then figure out the form it will take. Uh, whether it's like, you know, storytelling, uh, whether it's um, interview based, um, whether, you know, you want something done, you know, that involves lots of, you know, uh, or, you know, complicated archival work and, and music scores and things like that. Um, you know, figure out the best form that you can take to tell it. Uh, and then as you're trying out your, um, whatever product you're coming up, up with, I tell everyone, and we do this with our own shows, um, with pretty much everyone but Trevor Noah because his time is limited and he's enough of a pro that you don't have to pilot stuff. Um, but like everything else, if you're not a super you know, famous and feeling uh, comedian, like just pilot. Like make sure you know that your first, maybe even your second episode is not going to see the light of day uh, and just get it on tape. Um, well, a planet, uh, know the arc of what you're going to do, especially if it's conversational, um, and, uh, and what you want to cover and where you want to land, uh, not to say you can't be, uh, you can't explore things as well, but, you know, have a plan and then cut it to your best ability and put some ears on it, uh, get people's reactions, get their feedback and, go through the motions a couple times uh, to, to get the kinks out and do some research on how to interview. And, you know, the, the great thing about podcasting right now is that there are resources out there. Um, so there's no need to rush into anything, uh, especially if you're going to develop a fan base, you don't want to come out weak. You want to come out really strong. That's going to take sure. some, some work. Got it. And just to piggyback on that, so people have a frame of reference. Obviously, you can start at the very the very ground level uh, and kind of take a, a cheap route, if you will, or use some of the resources everybody has available. But then when we get into like a really, really top notch show, like some of the ones that you're involved with, can you just share with us like a ballpark budget for some of these really top notch productions? Oh, that is endlessly debated in the industry. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I'm serious because uh, you know, it, it's just a massive range um, because I think a lot of shows and narrative shows in particular, uh, try to, to get by with just a producer and a host and a very small budget. 
Um, and you know, that that's a recipe for all nighters. Um, and then you can do a lot with a really big budget, but that's probably not going to, you're not probably not going to find that through any ad supported means. So it's complicated, but the range that I've seen, and I, I, I don't say this facetiously, but it's anywhere between like $150,000 to $750,000. Like it, it just depends on how big of a team you want and uh, whether or not you can sort of be a little bit scrappy from the get go. Like at Slate, we we're super scrappy. It was just Leanne and I, and then like editors that they already had on staff. Um, and we, cut the most cut rate deals on archival and uh and music that we could um but you know we also like worked really really hard and pulled a lot of all-nighters uh yeah, we were happy to get the team um but like that's like that's literally the range um it's and yeah leon i think posted on twitter not that long ago asking what other people uh often budget for uh, for podcasts and it's just you know the question was would you want to make money off of it um, and then when the answer is yes it, it goes lower and lower um, but <laughs> I would say always uh, bid for more of a moonshot so if someone's asking you what you want for a uh, an eight-part narrative podcast that's going to take months to produce and a lot of research and fact-checking um, and resources to get people on tape you know, don't, don't give them anything less than 350,000. Okay. Good to know. That's uh, I think that's pretty enlightening. So anything else that, um, that you might want to share with our listeners here, either about obviously the industry, which is booming. And like you said, at the outset growing, it seems exponentially um, or anything about your journey that you think uh, it, just to give you an idea, we have a very, very broad audience. Um, but I think the the biggest niche is in the young professional space uh, with an interest in finance and business. Anything that you could per perhaps share with us? Um, gosh. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if uh, there's anything I can say beyond that. I, uh, I would say if you're, I, I'd say the most important thing is to, um, is to, and I know this is hard in COVID times, but, network and meet people and expand your horizons um, because that's where opportunities, you know, happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think networking opens a lot of doors and, and I don't mean to belabor the point. I know we're here at the end, but for networking, a lot of your contacts and success that you've had, have you found that most of it has been kind of remote and over the web and are you actually going to different conferences or, or shows and meeting and shaking hands with these folks that you work with? Well, right now it's definitely um, remote and the conferences that I once went to are still remote uh, are now remote too. But um, in non-COVID times, yeah, uh, there I would, uh, I think I'd say find the con conferences you want to go to because there were audio conferences that I went to for, uh, for years and also just like listservs and, uh, you know, New York City, uh, a couple uh, friends of mine like put together um, a, like monthly potluck in which people just got together and shared audio and um, that they were working on and people critiqued them. Uh, I think I actually hosted like the second or third, um, but it's going on, been going on for 10 years. I haven't gone in many years, um, but you know, that was, that was big. Yeah. I just, you meet a lot of people and you talk to them and you, uh, and you hear about what you're doing, they're doing. Um, it's just super helpful. But then, 
uh, as far as an, uh, a great audio conference, um, I mean, the podcast movement, if you're in, uh, is probably the, the widest span of material. You know, it's everything from more conservative political to like health and wellness uh, to the like art, artsy podcast space. Um, but then for a lot of the, uh, like the world I was coming from, which was like public radio and some really art, like uh, audio documentaries and stuff, the Third Coast um, Audio Do- International Audio Documentary Festival. Uh, every year in Chicago was like the most amazing thing to go to because you can you can feel like uh, pretty run down in your career at times. And then you just you meet people doing great things, uh, and you get excited about what you're doing again. Um, and so yeah, I can't I can't recommend enough, especially once COVID times are over, to just get out there. And uh, odds are there's a listserv somewhere, a Facebook page uh, for what you're doing, uh, and yeah, just connect with them and meet people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Andrew, for for sharing all this information. I think it's been very eye-opening and also helpful for people that maybe want to start their own podcast or just even learn more about the industry. So thanks again for making some time and, and sharing your story with us today. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, everyone. Thanks again for tuning into the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Keep listening to us. We'll come out every week and we'll have something new to share with you as we try to pursue wealth in its original meaning, which is a state of well-being. And I'll let each and every one of you define that as you may. We'll see you next week. Okay. The Kaderna Podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Pass. 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through Pass, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Nine Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Pass is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Pass or Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California Insurance License Number, OK04194. Content of the Kaderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M. Kaderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Kaderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.